Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another evening where we continue our reflections into special topics. Huh? Thursday evening is focused on answering your questions, responding to your very specific questions. And there certainly are a number of questions that are coming into my queue. What I wanted to do this evening is to respond to a question and consequently get into a topic that I don't think I have gotten into in the 10 years I have been on air here at (laughs) at, uh, KKXX, and that is confirmation. Your question is, what are the biblical foundations to the sacrament of confirmation? And with that question, I thought, gosh, this is perfect timing because I'm teaching on confirmation elsewhere. And so I thought, yeah, this would be good to respond to that question. And also another question that came in, what does the church intend to mean when she uses the phrase church father? So with that, I want to get into what we intend to mean by using the phrase church fathers and then get into the sacrament of confirmation, because really in going through the sacrament of confirmation, I will get into some church fathers. So I thought we could respond to these two questions. Now, that being said, What I want to do in getting at that question as it relates to the Church Fathers is uh, go to Mike Aquilina's The Fathers of the Church. Mike Aquilina has really emerged as a real scholar of the Church Fathers, and he offers up this definition into what the Church intends to mean by Church Fathers, and I just think it's excellent. He says this, At the dawn of the age of the Fathers, Luke the Evangelist wrote of the first Christians— Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, Acts 4.32. That single line illumines the history of the first six Christian centuries. As heirs to the apostles, the leaders and teachers of the early church, or the fathers of the church, were intensely concerned with preserving the unity and integrity of the company of those who believed, again there, quoting Acts 4.32, even as that company grew from a small band of several hundred to encompass millions of people speaking dozens of languages and dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. The unity of believers, unity in the person of Jesus Christ, was the precious inheritance of the church fathers. So, my dear friends, what we are made to see is that many books tell a story of the first Christian centuries as a succession of creeds, councils, persecutions, and heresies. But it was far more than that. And we should say far more interesting than that. It was the story of a family and of how the fathers of that family strove to keep their household together, to preserve the the family's patrimony, to teach and to discipline their children, and to protect their family from danger. Only when we understand them as fathers, can we truly understand the church fathers? So, as Aquilina describes here, the fathers of the church are a select group of early Christian teachers, around 100 in number, depending on the list you consult, 
the Catholic Church has long revered them and given them a privileged place of doctrinal authority. The fathers, generally speaking, meet four criteria. Orthodox doctrine, holiness of life, church approval, and antiquity. So the age of the fathers, which we sometimes call the patristic era, patristic just means what but father, right? Stretched from the middle of the first century to the middle of the eighth at the death of St. John of Damascus. Some of the earliest fathers were disciples of the apostles themselves, right? And the teaching of these men, which we call the teaching of the apostolic fathers, has always received special veneration within the church. And my dear friends, their witness is invaluable. Why? Because these fathers were nearest to the apostles, who were in turn nearest to who? But the person of Jesus Christ. Thus, the apostolic fathers are sometimes called the first echo of the apostles. But even beyond the first echo of the apostles, the church considers the patristic era in general to be a time of extraordinary grace for the expression and development of Christian doctrine. If you were to go into the New Testament, the apostles clearly see themselves as fathers to the newborn church. St. Paul reminded the Christians of Corinth that he was their father in Christ Jesus. We talked about that when we were going through chapter 4 of that first epistle to Corinth. He addressed Timothy and Titus as his true children in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2 and Titus chapter 1, verse 4. St. John also greeted his flock as what? My children and my little children, 1 John 2, verse 1. St. Peter explicitly referred to Christians of his own generation as what? The fathers in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Gradually, my friends, the phrase fathers of the church came precisely to mean only those Christian teachers who were designated as fathers in its more uh, longhand version of tradition, if you will. So the fathers of the church were those men who in their orthodox doctrine, holiness of life, and outstanding teaching became recognized as those who were fathers, those who protected the integrity and unity of the church. All right, with that, let us get into confirmation. Now, your question was, what are the biblical foundations to the sacrament of confirmation? Before we get to that, we have to really first define what we are talking about as it relates to the sacrament of confirmation. Confirmation is the sacrament of initiation that we could say completes the grace received in baptism by a special outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We can also say that these gifts seal, or taking up the word within the sacrament itself, confirm the baptized to be in union with Christ. Now, this sacrament of maturation, as St. Thomas Aquinas would call it, strengthens the will to more readily participate in worship and the life of the church, building up the kingdom of God. Confirmation, my friends, firms up the supernatural life we received at baptism, as highlighted by the church fathers, Saints Cyril and Ambrose. The clear distinction 
between baptism and confirmation is the perfection of the grace received. And that perfection consists in what? But the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What are those gifts? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord, that gift of the Spirit where you find yourself in awe and wonder before God the Father and God Creator. So in baptism, we have regeneration. In confirmation, we have perfection. By way of analogy, and this might almost sound silly, but bear with me, we can compare what we are talking about now to how you might make chocolate milk, right? Or at least in the whole craft household, how you might make chocolate milk. You know, you, you pull out the milk, you pull out the chocolate syrup, okay? You pour in the chocolate syrup, but if you just drink the milk with the chocolate syrup, you really won't get chocolate milk. What do you have to do? You have to stir the chocolate into the milk, right, for you to get chocolate milk. This is kind of what's going on in confirmation, right? It is the stirring of the gift received, if you will. And in that stirring, you have the perfection, the perfection of what has already been received. And maybe we can put it another way, a more theological way. In confirmation, the spiritual energy that was given in baptism is now awakened. What we have is spiritual progress to the preceding spiritual birth. This progress is given impetus by the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit is what renders the soul docile to his action, to God's action. In many ways, we could say that the aforementioned gifts of the Holy Spirit assist in this docility, this compliance with God. In its substance, confirmation is an anointing, which is the key word here, really, that brings us into the biblical vision of this sacrament as it draws us into the Old Testament and its types. Remember, typology is the study of the pattern and unity of the Old and New Testament, huh? What do we read in John chapter 5, verse 39? Jesus Christ say, you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. Well, what is Jesus talking about there? Well, how he fulfills the Old Testament, how the Old Testament bears witness to him, how the Old Testament anticipates, prefigures him. What do we find in the road to Emmaus? The story of the road to Emmaus. What was Jesus doing? He was showing the disciples on the road how he was a what? New Moses. How he fulfilled the law of Moses. Essentially, my friends, the study of typology is to come to see and at once appreciate how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament and how he takes all things into himself, transforming them and making them new. So typology is very important to any study on sacred scripture, and certainly here in our reflection on the sacrament of confirmation. So as it relates to anointing, anointings were used in antiquity when priests and kings were consecrated. In the words of one French theologian by the name of Daniel Lu, it constituted a sacrament by which the Holy Spirit was communicated to them in view of the functions which they were to carry out. In other words, when the priest was consecrated unto God, he was empowered with God to do great things. What happened when David was 
consecrated by Samuel. Let us go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you have your Bibles out there, go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And the opening verse is there. What do we read? The Lord said to Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have chosen my king from among his sons. As Jesse and his sons came to the sacrifice, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not judge from his appearance or from his lofty stature, because I have rejected him. Not as man sees, does God see, because man sees the appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. In the same way, Jesse presented seven sons before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Jesse replied, There is still the youngest who is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send for him. We will not begin the sacrificial banquet until he arrives here. Jesus sent and had the young man brought to them. He was ruddy, a youthful handsome to behold, and making a splendid appearance. The Lord said, There, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel, with the horn of oil in hand, anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, catch this, my friends, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. So Samuel anoints David, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day on. See, he was consecrated, huh? He was consecrated. I love that verse. I think it really does highlight the essence of what confirmation is all about. This anointing and consequent rushing of the Spirit. Now, what's more, we also find in the Old Testament writings the rite of anointing with oil within the respective ministries of the priest, the prophet, and the king. It was anticipated that the coming of the Messiah would be the flesh incarnation of this threefold office. And indeed, you and I both know, my friends, Christ literally means what? Anointed one. And as such, he would fill these offices. But in fulfilling these offices, he transforms them, establishing a new order of grace, pouring out upon all the baptized, the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of our vocations as sons and daughters of God. Now, the principal typological image of of Old Testament anointing can be found in Aaron, right? The high priest. The anointing and consecration of Aaron takes place so that he might be the leader of a chosen race, a royal nation. Aaron was anointed that he might fulfill his vocation. Aaron receives this rushing of the Spirit that he might become the person that God called him to be. It's interesting in the context of vocation. The sacrament of confirmation is very important as it is the very real participation in the grace of Christ. That we might be a priestly, sacrificial people, prophetic in word and deed, and we could say kingly in our governance of who we are and where we are going in our sacramental vocations. 
In the words of St. Ambrose, huh, the church father St. Ambrose, highlighted in paragraph 1303 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a sharing in the office that includes not only the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, but also a sharing that calls us to guard what we have received. Guard what you have received, St. Ambrose says. God the Father has marked you with his sign. Christ the Lord has confirmed you and has placed his pledge in you. Beautiful. In the words of Daniel Liu again, just as baptism configures us to Christ dead and risen again, so confirmation configures us to Christ in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So confirmation, my friends, is about God's anointing, is about God's seal. Here we should be reminded that the Greek word used for seal throughout the New Testament is sphargis, which translates as the seal placed upon books, the inscription or impression made by a seal of the name of God, and pertinent to our reflection on confirmation here, anything that is confirmed, proved, authenticated as by a seal. If you were to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, you see the Greek word there, sphargis. So the Greek word for seal, sphargis, can translate as to confirm, to ratify as with a seal. And again, this is essentially what is taking place in the sacrament of confirmation. Now, in confirmation, the church fathers also bring our attention to the use of oil. Oil was used as both a remedy to heal and an ointment to strengthen. The healing is proper, of course, to the removal of any traces of sin, and the strengthening is proper to initiating the newly baptized Christian into the battle of good versus evil. What we would find in antiquity is that athletes would use certain oils to strengthen their muscles. In baptism, we are strengthened to do battle against Satan and his demons. In confirmation, that strength is confirmed, ratified, as with a seal, huh? What are we to appreciate here? Well, the church fathers wanted us to see that we need to step up, step forward to the line of scrimmage and enter into the holy contest, mindful that we do it with Christ who not only descends into the human arena to do battle with us and for us, but that he has equipped each and every one of us with divine ammunition in the sacramental life of the church and the graces that come to us in our life of Christ. Now, what's more, and I find this to be most interesting, is that the oil was perfumed with what we call muron. That is, the chrism oil was perfumed with this muron. The idea here is that the church is missionary by nature. In the words of Benedict XVI, the church exists to evangelize, right? So the gifts we receive are the perfume for the nations. Here again, there is this post-baptismal element to the oil. The oil of anointing communicates this call to holiness, the participation in the very holiness of Christ. How many of us are drawn to sweet-smelling oils and 
and sweet-smelling perfumes. Confirmation has this kind of evangelical character. As much as we enter into the gifts received and allow those gifts to, we could say, perfume the world. In this manner of speaking, in our evangelization, we are to be the fragrance to the bloom, huh? (laughs) The fragrance to the bloom. Recall that narrative from Genesis 8. Recall the story that surrounds Noah and the saving of his family. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, after they had found land and Noah offered up a holocaust, we read, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never curse the ground of man. So after God smells the pleasing odor of the sacrifice, do we hear those words? I will never curse the ground of man. Then there is the beautiful account of the martyrdom of Polycarp of Smyrna, who is probably the most networked man in the early church. We kicked off this evening's program with the reflection on the meaning of the fathers of the church. And we talked about the apostolic fathers, the gospel's first echo, if you will. Well, there is one man who connects some very important saints, and that is Polycarp of Smyrna. What do I mean? Well, Polycarp of Smyrna, and we say Polycarp of Smyrna because he was a bishop of Smyrna, right? Was a disciple of St. John the Evangelist. How about that? He was at the feet of St. John the Evangelist himself. He was a peer and colleague to St. Ignatius of Antioch, arguably the greatest church father. And then he had at his feet St. Irenaeus of Lyon, another hugely important church father. Okay, so Polycarp of Smyrna connects John the Evangelist to St. Ignatius of Antioch, and then St. Ignatius of Antioch to St. Irenaeus of Lyon. So, a very networked man, huh? Now, I mention him because as recorded in the account of his death in 155 AD, his death of martyrdom, we have an extraordinary account of those who witnessed his death. While Polycarp was being engulfed in flames... Those who were there said this. While Polycarp was engulfed in flames, we smelled a sweet odor as if frankincense or some other precious spices had been smoking there. Now, I'm sure we can say that such a smell was pleasing to the Lord, huh? Incidentally, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, his death did not come by fire. The Lord strengthened him but rather a stake to the heart by one of the Roman soldiers. I mention Noah and Polycarp because whether it be a sacrificial holocaust by way of a lamb offering or an actual offering of who we are, and of course in Polycarp's case, who he was as a son of God in his martyrdom, in that offering you have what is pleasing to the Lord. And so confirmation should not only be seen as the 
the sacrament of evangelization, but also we could say the sacrament of martyrdom. Here we should consider 2 Corinthians 2.15, where we read about the aroma of Christ. Does not the sacrament of confirmation bring about the aroma of Christ? Now, as it relates to more scripture, in the church's tradition, we consider the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the upper room, Pentecost, as the first confirmation, if you will, the first strengthening. In the upper room, we have more than an intervention of the Spirit, but the genesis of a new dispensation of grace. Pentecost was the moment in which the Holy Spirit was communicated as a divine person. And this event is brought about again in the sacrament of confirmation. Oh, by the way, anytime I talk about Pentecost and what happened in the upper room, we should always be mindful that we have in this episode a reversal of fortunes to what happened long ago in Babel. In Babel, where God used multiple languages to confuse the people. Here, the Spirit uses multiple languages to bring together the family of God. My dear friends, God pays very close attention to the details in salvation history. And I think the more time you spend with sacred scripture and how God works in salvation history, we come to appreciate that for what it is. Now, just by way of closing thoughts to our reflection on just not the biblical foundations to confirmation, but confirmation itself, I think it would be important to look at this great sacrament of confirmation and be mindful that for anyone who is confirmed, there is a time of preparation in which you undergo a time of purification. Essentially, we have this call to be purified and refined in the fire of God's love. Why? Well, that we might be more disposed to receive God's fire, God's love, right? We should remember that the apostles themselves were purified for a period of 10 days, a testing time that had preceded the outpouring of grace in the upper room. Their hearts, as they were being purified, were what? Expanding expanding. Christ reminded the apostles that they would not be ready to preach and evangelize until the gift of the Holy Spirit had come. And the time was right after they were purified. In the end, my friends, in our confirmation, we are made to prepare our hearts that we might be divinized, as it has been said, to our ontological roots as 2 Peter 1.4 would remind us, so as to be the aroma of Christ, the frankincense to the world, that sweet-smelling perfume to the world. The sacrament of confirmation is about an anointing, and an anointing in which we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit that perfects that gift we received at baptism. And in doing so, prepares us to become the person who, who we are called to be in our baptismal vocation to live in God and for other all the time, anywhere and everywhere. 
With that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.